What's up? It's Delaney, and I'd love to invite you to become an honorary co-host of the Self-Helpless Podcast. Do you want to pick episode topics and guests? Done. Want to surprise your loved ones with shout-outs on the show for a birthday, project launch, a much-needed divorce? Whatever you're up to, would love to be a part of the celebration. Get your favorite and least favorite quotes featured on the podcast, submit questions for our special guests, and find lots more new features and surprises at patreon.com slash selfhelpless. You'll also get added to our patron insider email list to easily redeem rewards via a quick email reply because we know hanging out on Patreon isn't everyone's thing. You can also opt out of emails if you prefer to be a silent supporter of the show. And don't worry, we do not Scrooge McDuck these contributions. 100% of proceeds go directly to operating expenses that make this weekly podcast possible and available to all. Learn more at patreon.com selfhelpless or simply click the link in this episode's description. Thank you for helping me fill the void of being the last standing host of the Self Helpless Podcast. Thank you so much. Welcome to Fail Better. David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Self Helpless. I'm Kelsey Cook. I'm Delaney Fisher. And today we have back by popular demand, uh, truly one of the most incredible guests I feel like we could get on the show. It's Dr. Romani. We have her back on. And you might have heard her on the narcissistic personality disorder episode we did. And you might have also seen and heard her on the Red Table Talk multiple times Literally everywhere it's, she is everywhere <laughs> it's it's incredible and she has a new podcast called navigating narcissism and i i really feel like a lot of our listeners will be interested in in checking that out and um she's just such a wealth of information <laughs> yeah we talked all i mean we talked about borderline personality disorder histrionic antisocial personality disorder you know, patterns to be mindful of. If you think you're in a relationship with somebody that has any of this, if you're a mental health professional and you're new, new to the field, there's things to be mindful about there as well. I mean, we just covered so much. Kelsey taught you touched on the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial stuff. Like we covered a lot of ground um, in this, uh, in this episode. Yeah. There's a lot of meat to this one. It's like, if you don't walk away with some nugget of information, I would be shocked because it was <laughs> yes, just like <laughs> so, so informative. Yeah. Um, before we get into our episode with Dr. Romani, um, I, I have a few more tour dates through the end of this year, and then we start into my 2023 touring schedule. So this month I will be in Washington, D.C., October 13th through the 15th. I know we always have so many great helpsters in the D.C. area. I'm going to be in Grand Rapids, October 21st through the 22nd, Atlanta in November, 
Burbank in December. And then I can give you guys a little sneak peek into the early dates of 2023. I'm going to be in Providence and in Raleigh in January. I'm going to be in Philly and Portland in February and then Cincinnati in March. And um, by the time this comes out, I'm sure there will be more dates added. But as of now, that's what I can tell you. So you can go to KelseyCook.com, get those tour date tickets and uh, come see me on the road. Yeah, fantastic. How about and- you, yeah, if if you are an entrepreneur and you're looking to scale your business without sacrificing your time, your health, your values, all that stuff, would love to have you over at my podcast, The Minimalist Business Podcast. You can get it at delaneyfisher.com. It is a private podcast, but it's completely free. So you can get it delivered right to your inbox. You can connect it to your favorite podcast app. My dogs are going absolutely batshit in the background. I don't know if you can hear that. It's like two freaking dinosaurs wrestling. Um, I'm sneezing. We just went from such a professional sounding podcast to just like total chaos. Just nuts. Um, But yeah, I'd love to have you. So whether you you have a thriving side hustle and you want to turn that into your full-time career or you've been running your business full-time for years and you're really like overwhelmed with how to scale your business without, you know, giving it so much more of your time and all that stuff. That's what we really cover over there. So yeah, we'd love to have you delaneyfisher.com for that. Yes. All right, guys, I hope you enjoy our episode with Dr. Romani and we will come back in the outro to share a couple more things. Here it is. Man, we are so excited to have you back. Thank you for being on again. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's so great. And it's great to see both of you this time. Yes. Yes. I was Mm -hmm. so so sad to miss the last one. Um, But we got so many messages from our listeners that um, it really, really impacted their lives to have. Oh, great. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before we get into some um, some of the questions that we have for this episode, I wanted to know how has your life changed since you did Red Table Talk? I've done it a few times, you yeah, know. So it's been a like, few times. You know, it's been. Um, I don't. I don't think I'd say it's changed. I. I'm. I feel. I. The. The. The crew of that show, the production team, is is unsurpassed. They're, honestly, I think they're probably the best in the industry. Wow. So getting to work with them is such a pleasure, and I I feel like I learned so much from them too. And account for count some of them as being some of my dearest friends. Um, it's it's they're just a ple- it's been a pleasure to be on it, and um, and I'm glad to see them being willing to have these conversations. I have to say, so many talk format shows it's a lot of fluff and they don't want to take on really difficult topics. So it's been like, I've met just some fantastic people and have had, had the chance to do some fantastic, um, get uh, fantastic opportunities. But to your question where life has really changed is that it's culminated in the podcast. Uh, Red table talk is the production company of that podcast and has really been like by having their support really have been able to, um, to grow the podcast and, and have a phenomenal team on there as well. So I'm very grateful to them. congratulations thank you that is incredible uh so when we had you on last we were focusing mostly on uh narcissistic yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and uh today we kind of wanted to dive into both borderline personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder right Mm -hmm. and and kind of how they all are similar, how they're different. So do you mind starting out with just explaining to our listeners what is borderline personality disorder? Yeah. So borderline personality disorder is a personality disorder that is characterized by 
instability across a lot of areas of a person's function, instability in mood, instability in identity, instability in emotion. What we also see in borderline personality is sort of a a state of dysregulation that can be sort of set off typically by a crisis like an abandonment crisis, either perceived abandonment or real abandonment. Some people with borderline personality have difficulties with strong emotion, especially anger. So there may be very dysregulated anger at times when the individual feels unsafe or, you know, activated in some way by a circumstance. Again, a lot of instability and sense of self and and a very unstable sense of identity. People with borderline personality will also sometimes describe having a sort of a chronic state of emptiness. Um, And then in some cases, what we'll see with people with borderline personality is because they're unable to regulate their moods well, and they can often feel a significant sense of despair, there can be frequent suicidal thoughts, suicidal gestures, or suicidal behavior. So in that way, borderline personality is actually one of the more, if you will, um, severe and dangerous mental health issues because it is uh, because of the with the higher rates of suicidal ideation gestures and behavior we see associated with that particular personality pattern. And more often than not, people with borderline personality have co-occurring disorders, most typically mood disorders like depression. Um, anxiety, a lot of anxiety could be frank anxiety disorders. We may also see other kinds of high risk behavior that sits alongside borderline personality, things like, for example, um, substance use and other risk-taking behaviors that not only can the substance use escalate into sort of problematic substance use, but also, for example, issues with dysregulating, dysregulated spending or eating or things like that. So again, it's a lot of instability, a lot of dysregulation, and a lot of despair. Wow. And how is borderline different than histrionic and like maybe even antisocial personality disorder? It's, it's significantly different. So histrionic personality disorder is a personality disorder that I wouldn't be surprised to see from a diagnostic perspective to be phased out. I think there's already some talk of that. You know, what the DSM needs to be in the ICD, all these, these disease classification systems need to be remain aware of is, you know, sort of the framing and the contextualization around a disorder, like histrionic personality, even the name is bad. Like histrionic derives from hysteria, which is basically a pathologization of a woman's uterus, which I have a problem with. You know, it's like the idea of hysteria is a wandering uterus. Histrionic is a twist on that phrase. So immediately they're going to have to find, you know, if they're going to keep any of that, uh, that pattern in the DSM, they're going to have to change the name. But also histrionic is very different though. It's it's a personality style characterized and it's a maladaptive personality style characterized by attention seeking and very shallow emotion. So people who are histrionic tend to be overly dramatic, very exaggerated in their emotionality, desperately need attention. And if they don't get attention, they feel very uncomfortable. You'll see a lot of theatrical gestures and attention getting gestures. You may see inappropriateness in how they'll conduct themselves. Notoriously, people with a histrionic style have been labeled as being very flirtatious. So will often be quite seductive as a way to get attention to themselves. And it's a... um, And then they're very shallow in their emotions. There's a lot of, they'll have a lot of sort of 
you know, flighty relationships where it's like lots of air kissing and hi, it's so good to see you kind of stuff versus a lot of depth. And when a person really needs that person with that personality style to be there in a deeper way, the person with a histrionic style either isn't interested or really doesn't even seem quite capable of it. Their empathy is kind of shallow too. They'll seem very emotionally sort of, hi, how are you? Oh my gosh, you're sad. But it doesn't really, you person doesn't really feel heard by them. If I ran the world, I would view histrionic personality styles as sort of a bit of a continuation of narcissism, almost like a milder level narcissism. So I'd say that a lot of folks with what I consider mild narcissistic presentations look like they have this more histrionic style. I think certain sort of social things that our world, social media really pulls for people with histrionic personality styles who will often use it as a place to showcase emotions in a very raw, but at times sort of very um, inappropriate way. People with histrionic personality styles can be very intrusive. They'll violate boundaries in the name of just sort of, it's almost like everything's about attention for them. They feel very emotionally stunted. But again, the reason I always tell people to have caution with this is that when you really want to look at it from a gender socialization perspective, before you start pathologizing people for sort of being seductive and flirtatious, we also have to look at how that behavior gets incentivized by society, right? So I, you know, I mean, again, when we can get, get into a big sociological discussion of why I think there's an issue, but I think the shallowness, the, the, um, the shallow empathy, the shallow intimacy, the attention seeking, it all feels like narcissism, but without as much of the malevolent manipulativeness and people who are histrionic are uncomfortable when they're not the center of attention. Yeah. And yeah, you bring up such a great point with social media incentivizing some of that behavior because mm-hmm. I mean people do literally make more money on social media by growing their following by sometimes turning their platform into that vlog kind of a oh, yeah. where they're, you know, openly openly crying on on Instagram stories, mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. you know really bringing people into their world, and mm-hmm. um, and you know not to say there's anything wrong with crying on social media. It's just that uh, some people take that and turn it into like, how can I make this like a one person show, and really, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're absolutely, you know, it starts to get subtle, right? Because it's almost like a sincerity thing. And the what social media allows people to do is really get a lot of attention, be the center of attention, and will sort of capitalize on any form of emotional presentation. It's almost like they're going to say, oh, I'm getting a lot of likes when I do this. I'm going to keep doing this rather than a real sincere expression of that emotion. They're in it for the attention rather than the authenticity. Uh, Got it. And um, would you be able to explain antisocial personality disorder as well? Antisocial personality disorder is an entirely different animal. So antisocial personality disorder is often traditionally what the term people are used to hearing is psychopathy. So Antisocial personality disorder is a very unfortunately named disorder because people think people who are antisocial want to be alone. That's not the case. Antisocial is called that because it's antisocial norms, antisocial rules. So antisocial people with antisocial personality disorder, again, think of them as psychopaths because it, it most best conforms onto that term. But these are people who for most of their lives, so even prior to the age of 15, have been engaging in behavior that violates 
the laws and ethics of a society and the rights of others. They have very little care for other people. So very little empathy, very little remorse when they do something bad. They do bad things because it's a means to an end for them. They will often um, have very uh, inconsistent work histories. You'll see that they've had aliases. They can be, they may have had other lives. They don't talk about, they'll lie about having been in prison. They'll lie about, they'll lie. I mean, they lie about everything. Very, very manipulative, very, very calculating, very, very cunning. But it's that lack of remorse, that lack of anxiety that really sort of makes that antisocial personality style set out. Again, without belaboring this and turning it into an abnormal psychology lecture, antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy have some differences. Personally, I I prefer the psychopathy framing because I think it captures something very unique about people with that personality style where they don't get anxious, right? So that's why they can do bad things. The things that stop most of us from doing bad things is not just conscience, not just fear of punishment, but also anxiety. So even if there wasn't a punishment, we would not walk into someone's house and steal their stuff for no other reason that it would make us feel horribly anxious and horribly uncomfortable. People who are psychopathic don't have that. Again, calculating, cold, callous, parasitic, they will exploit anyone or anything for anything they need. And these are long-standing patterns. A person doesn't wake up at 30 and one day is, is psychopathic or have an antisocial personality. In order to get that diagnosis prior to the age of 15, that child would have had to show patterns like truancy, stealing, bullying other kids, torturing animals, setting fires. You know, it was a collection of that kind of thing, violating the rights of other children, maybe even causing harm to parents or other children in the home. So it's a lifelong pattern. And the lack of remorse, that pe- that particular element of that diagnosis is not required to give someone a diagnosis of antisocial personality. It is sort of a requirement in a formulation of psychopathy. To me, the lack of remorse is a ringer. When someone does something terrible and doesn't feel bad about it, it's chilling. And in my own research in the past, I was very struck that we would see sort of two forms of antisocial, the people who did bad things and like, I don't feel bad and scary. And the people who do bad things and say, listen, I was a lost 24-year-old kid. I grew up in an abusive family. I was abused. I abused other people. My behavior wasn't good. Um, and I did time in prison. And I've now really devoted my life to taking kids off this path. But I know I did a bad thing. And I'm sorry for the people I hurt. I, that doesn't feel like psychopathy to me. That feels like circumstance. So I think that there's where the DSM, I think, fails. And that theoretical formulation of psychopathy hits it. So when I use that term, I'm hitting more of that lack of remorse, cold, callous, calculating, parasitic, sometimes even sadistic or moderately paranoid person. As you could imagine, if you list these three out, antisocial people are the most dangerous to others. People with borderline personality are most dangerous to themselves. Mm, Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you for clearing all that up. Yeah. And what's the difference between like a malignant narcissist and somebody who is um, the antisocial personality disorder? It's a great question. And so I always view it as like they're adjacent and it's almost like that's the point. I don't know if you've ever taken a train. So you're on the same train for a while. Then the train gets to this end station. And if you want to keep going to other cities, you got to switch trains. So they almost go to the last station together, but psychopathy keeps going in another direction, right? So malignant narcissism and psychopathy share a lot of top notes. And because of that, 
theorists have actually sat down and come up with different models. One that one that was once called the dark triad that is now called the dark tetrad. Again, I prefer that model because instead of trying to find a category, are they a psychopath or are they a malignant narcissist? They're so similar, right? The lack of empathy, the exploitativeness, the manipulativeness, the entitlement, the grandiosity, the cruelty, um, the the uh, the sort of the 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 singular motivation for power and and pleasure and profit and all of that the dom- the need for domination similar all the way through yeah. where we see that again the train goes off to a whole different direction is the anxiety piece and narcissistic people have anxiety it's it's a driver for them and it's largely due to their insecurity even a malignant narcissist is somewhat insecure that's why they still need validation psychopathic people don't need validation, nor are they anxious. Psychopathic people may be driven by something else. For example, profit. They're like, I don't care. Anybody likes me. I don't give a damn. I just want my money. You know, And so that's very different than a narcissist who would really be bothered by how they're being portrayed, right? The other difference is that lack of remorse. While narcissistic people can seem like they have a lack of remorse, they're still getting eaten up by shame, even if you're not hearing about it. The psychopathic person, not so shamey. They really don't have that. It's almost like they're lacking a chip. They're like, yep, don't care. Don't feel bad. You know, that, that kind of, you know, it's a very different presentation. What I like about the dark tetrad model is it takes in four elements and it looks at how they relate. Psychopathy, narcissism, something called Machiavellianism, and sadism. And it views those four things as hanging out together. And by having that dark tetrad, you get all that narcissistic stuff, that lack of empathy, manipulative, grandiose, all that stuff. You account for the psychopathy, lack of guilt, lack of remorse, lack of anxiety, you know, um, parasitic, uh, shape-shifting, chronic liars. You bring in that Machiavellian piece, which is the willingness to take advantage of anyone for anything. So being very exploitative, but also really masterful at working systems. And then you got that sadism piece, which is, I kind of get off on hurting people. I kind of lets everyone know I'm the most powerful person in the room. If I ran the world, I would call it the dark quintad, I guess, because I would add paranoia into the mix, not full blown paranoia like we'd see in a person with schizophrenia, but paranoia to the degree that there's a constant perception of threat, the sense that everybody's out to get them. So they're always on high alert, which is why all you need to do is even look at them the wrong way. And it's like, what are you looking at? And then before you know it, it's like a gun battle. These have a tremendous likelihood of sort of of personalizing what's happening around them and then the need to eradicate the target, right? So when people are more narcissistic, they're more thin-skinned. They're more like, yeah, you think you can mess with me kind of thing? Psychopath's just going to shoot you in the head. So it's a little bit different in how it manifests. But that dark tetrad or Dr. Romney's dark quintad pattern is um, it's dangerous. The only thing I can say about it is it's dangerous. And I don't just mean dangerous, violent. I also mean dangerous corporate. Like these are people who will have no problem turning around rules and regulations to put tons of money in their pocket, even if people lower on the economic scale suffer immeasurably. To me, that's dangerous because ultimately many people will die from not having safety or healthcare or all of that. So no matter what, when you have those factors in place, you're dealing with a dangerous person. Wow. Um, 
We have a lot of mental health professionals that tune into this podcast. Do you have any advice for them if they are maybe new to their field and they're trying to spot these behaviors as early as possible within their clients or, you know, somebody bringing in their spouse? Do you have any guidance for people who are really trying their hardest to differentiate? Between these three styles, between yeah, Gordon and his three. Yeah. They're, you know, it's almost like one of the things they're so, so different, right? However, what's so challenging with personality issues and why, where they're very different from everything else in the world of mental health is people with personality issues, it's a stable pattern in the sense of they always have the personality issue. It's These things don't tend to sort of get fixed away. It's not like depression, where if you catch a person when they're in the midst of a florid episode of depression, it's very clear they're depressed. Well, those depressive symptoms can go away between therapy, medication, and even spontaneous remission. So there will be a time that person is not depressed. If I met a healthcare professional, they would say, well, you're not depressed. The person subjectively would say, I'm not depressed. But when you have a personality disorder, it's always there. It always characterizes the person. It always characterizes how they go through the world. Mm. That said, when you meet a person with a personality issue, whether it be borderline, histrionic, or antisocial, if they're if they're on their A game, you, they're going to just look like anyone else you've ever met. It's really with all personality issues, sort of the 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 thing you want to see is how this person responds under conditions of stress. So when the person has stress put on them, that's when we see the personality disordered symptoms jump to the forefront. And that stress can be frustration, it can be disappointment, it could be rejection, whatever it is. That's when that stuff just boom jumps to the forefront. None of us are on our best days when those things happen, but a healthy person kind of recalibrates pretty quick saying, ah, I've had a day. You know what? I'm going to go to bed earlier. Like, oh, I had a day. I don't want to take it out on you. Or I'm sorry, I was short with you. I had a day. It's very quick. They're, they're aware of others. They're aware of themselves and will do something that's adaptive, whether it's go to sleep early or have a favorite meal or take a walk or whatever. Folks with these personality styles will come out guns blazing, and they'll usually take their rage out on everybody around them. So for a person who's with someone, you know, with one of these patterns, in the case of borderline, what you're going to see, if the person is feels abandoned or rejected or slighted, you're going to see a lot, you're going to often see anger, very dysregulated, sometimes even unsettling anger, or you're going to see despair that could even culminate into, you don't care what happens to me, maybe I just need to die kind of thing. So it's frightening. It's very frightening for the other person. With histrionic, it, you're almost going to feel like initially people in histrionic relationships think this person's fun. I mean, because they kind of are fun, like, let's go do this. And they they almost feel, especially younger people, like they're sexy, you know, and they're like, they're kind of just, oh, I'm going to dance on the table and I'm going to get all the attention. And you sort of feel like you're in this sort of really cool party, you know, person situation. And then as in all relationships, after the first four to six weeks of fun and hot sex are starting to abate, real life happens. And you're like, yo, are you not going to get up and go to work? I can't be bothered to work. Like it's very immature. Mm. Antisocial, whole different game. Like it is chilling. It is scary. And people who have antisocial personality disorder, some of them can be quite, quite charming, quite charismatic. Um, Elma, that love bombing we see in narcissism, you can see it in um, antisocial personality as well. 
The difference is, is that the antisocial person, when they're in a relationship, they're really only motivated by power, profit, and pleasure. That's it. So they're going to ask themselves, am I, you know, how, what pleasure am I going to get from you? You make me look good. Um, I like having sex with you. Uh, it might be, I need a, I need an address in this city. So I'm going to take up with this person so I can use their apartment as my address. Do they have a resource I need? So it's basically how they can parasite or exploit that person. That's what an antisocial person is looking for. But initially, because they are quite charismatic and charming, a lot of people will think, whoa, this is a cool person and they will, they'll keep going and then scarier things will happen. Antisocial personality people can be quite controlling in a relationship, doing everything from asking you your whereabouts all the time to even putting trackers on you. These days, and this is again, I will say this to everyone, air tags, dangerous. If you have those, those Apple air tags, which you could use to find so many things, which are great. These are the kinds of things that are being used to track people. People, If you have a messy car like I do, throw an AirTag in there. You can follow that person wherever they go. If you, have an, if you have an iPhone or any Apple device, it'll tell you if there's an AirTag in your proximity. So make sure your devices are set to that. So stalk, tracking and stalking has become easier than ever. You know, really, I don't know that that was poor Apple's intent, but it's sure. Because when I saw the when I saw the technology, I was like, wait a minute, I bought some for some as a gift. I'm like, oh, what? Wait, if this has unlimited range, because people are putting them in their suitcases. So if the suitcase gets lost, they'll know where it is. And there has been some interesting articles about this. So I always say to people, if you find a way, get an Apple device so you can make sure, you know, people really sometimes even have to have cars swept. Trackers are really easy to put on cars, but stalking, tracking, control, always knowing your whereabouts, cameras. So this can be a very sort of stocky controlling element. Buying a person a phone is a gift saying, hey, I love you, baby. Here's a phone. Oh, how generous. It's the newest phone. And they, But they've got the, they can follow you. So if you have someone's phone on your account, you can follow them and fool with the settings. The things people don't think about and might even think are generous, sometimes should give you pause, may drive and ask you, you said you were here, but you actually didn't get home until this time. How do they know that? Because they were sitting in front of your house or around the corner. So that sort of unsettling stuff could happen in that kind of a relationship. Inconsistencies. Antisocial personalities lie a lot. And all they're really good liars. At some point, you might catch them in the lie. There's dates that don't add up or phone calls or letters that come in from things that don't track or mail that might even come with a sort of a different spelling of the name, but could have been an alias. And so I can be like I'm saying, antisocials are pretty severe presentation, but the relationships are always parasitic. They need something. They need a, the, a anything from a um, you know the, the, an address to uh, money to a credit card. You name it. It's very very parasitic, and then it gets scary. And then if you try to leave, it can get quite dangerous. Mm, man, I need to look into the air tag thing. Just I've just never yeah. even heard of it. Yeah, no, no. I tell, I mean, domestic violence programs are telling people this a lot. If you're in any kind of relational space like this, and I believe, and I don't know the specifics on it, that an I, an iPhone would be able to detect if there's an air tag in your presence, even if it's not your air tag. So I would just strongly encourage people to either go to a, you know, an Apple uh, retailer or go onto the Apple website because I think they have lots of um, uh, this. This came up, and so Apple had to modify the technology. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, on one hand, I'm like, nice. oh, that's a great idea for my luggage. I try because I try. It's a great, yeah, you know, it is a great idea for luggage, pets. Like people have found little tags they can put on their dogs, which is great. You know, an idiot like me who's losing her keys and everything else under the sun. Like I was like, I should put one in my little bag that I misplaced. Like it's there. It's not a bad thing until it's a bad thing. And in this right. case, unfortunately, the range of it is really quite remarkable. Like you'd know where somebody is, and that's yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So did you watch the um, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial? I watched parts of it, but not all of it because I was like, I ain't touching this one. This was a mess. Yeah. So I watched I watch, I watch enough of it to say I'm not watching anymore. <laughs> Okay. Well, I don't know if you'll be able to give your opinion on this, but um, you know, Dr. Shannon Curry at one point had diagnosed Amber Heard with histrionic personality disorder, mm-hmm. borderline personality disorder, mm-hmm. after giving her the personality mm-hmm. test for that. I just wondered if you had an opinion on that and if, I don't know, I guess if you found that to be accurate or, or what your opinion was. Well, I think that, you know, I obviously I've never met Amber Heard. I've never assessed Amber Heard. So I couldn't really, you know, offer a a tender, any kind of meaningful diagnosis of her. You know, I think that what happens is when you have in that trial, I think that something that jumped out at folks was how much sort of dramatic gesticulating and face making and theatrics she was engaging in that would that presentation is very congruent with a histrionic style. Right. So the person's like, like that's all. No one can see me though. This is all, so. Anyone who's right. listening, I just made a lot of funny faces, but it's all very dramatic, you know. And so, my guess is that's where that person was coming from. And because I was hearing in the trial, there was lots of reports of dysregulated anger in the relationship. Was what I was hearing, if I'm remembering correctly. Some of that may have been related to where the the the. Uh, if the expert was coming up with potential hypotheses around borderline personality, you need more than that. You'd have to show instability and identity, instability across a lot of areas. Um, But that instability to the degree that that was the point that was being made, that might be where that was being captured. You know, this is where that histrionic diagnosis though. I'm not, I'm not a fan of it because I don't think it gives us that much. I think it captures things that are almost baked in. Like I think, borderline personality disorder as a diagnosis holds its own. It really does. It captures a very specific clinical phenomenology where there are now increasingly more and more treatments to work with. Narcissistic personality has got to go. 
It's got to go. I think that that diagnosis is too nonspecific. It's a personality style. And by making it diagnostic and you have no treatment for it, that doesn't make sense to me. And it's just muddying the water. So again, once again, if I ran the world, which I don't, then I'd say, let's get rid of NPD. Antisocial personality disorder, they should have changed it to psychopathy a long time ago and drawn from that theoretical literature. As it stands now, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't work. So I would clean up, I'd scrub up that entire sort of high conflict personality section of the DSM. I understand where that person was coming from. Again, having not, I, in order for me to say it, because we, in to give these kinds of diagnoses, borderline personality, even histrionic personality, and certainly antisocial personality, it takes a minute. It really does. Antisocial might be the easiest to diagnose because if you come to find out this person's committed a bunch of crimes before they were 15 or done bad things before they're 15 and committed crimes after 15 or or violated the rights of others, you're in. Like it's a very behavioral pattern, right? Borderline is a much more emotional pattern. So to really understand that it wasn't just like a person had a bad week after their divorce. It wasn't that, but it was like every time there was anything that even smacks of rejection, that incredible react, uh, reactive hypersensitivity, the stuff that is very much we see in a borderline personality. You have to spend a lot of time with a person to be able to discern that and also rule out all the comp- competing diagnose, competing diagnoses like bipolar two and and um, substance use disorders and other things that have dysregulation as part of them. So I don't know how much time this woman spent with her to come to this hypothesis, but I think some of the top notes we saw in the history, particularly the the gestures and the behavior in the courtroom, completely see why that tracked the way it did to a histrionic explanation. Maybe the dysregulated anger and the volatility that we saw in the relationship might have tracked to the borderline, but then there was someone else in the relationship too. So we'd have to account for their behavior and personality style as well. Right. I feel like that was talked about a lot throughout the trial was the whole concept of reactive abuse and how it was, I mean, again, yeah, you want to like really get into relationships, high in volatility. It's, it's, it is this, that, 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 so let's put it, this, this idea of reactivity is it's sort of this unhealthy presentation where people are very almost impulsive and disinhibited and very quick, like a Cobra strike, like right in your face versus somebody who takes a minute before responding. The person who takes a minute may be just as angry and may say, I am so upset, right? I can't even talk about this. I'd like to take a while to organize my thoughts. Some people hear me and say, come on, Romani, like, you know, what robotic AI universe do you live in that people aren't reacting when they're angry? It's fair enough. That said, when I've worked with clients who are reactive, I'm like, okay, you do you, but there will be a consequence to your reactivity. You don't get to walk around and vomit your feelings on everybody and be reactive because you're upset and not expect that there'll be blowback, that the person who's abandoning you actually leaves for good. Or people say, I don't want to talk to you anymore, or I don't feel safe with you. You can't have it both ways. You just can't. Right. Mm. You mentioned bipolar too. Are there any like other common misdiagnoses that often happen? Let's say somebody actually has borderline, but mm-hmm. maybe somebody diagnoses them with something else. Yeah. Or- so bipolar two is a very common one. And we, one thing you got to remember about borderline personality, what often gets missed is that people say, oh my gosh, he's up and down all the time. He is bipolar. I'm like, no, 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 no. Borderline has that in one day, lability and lability is that woo that big shape shape shifting of emotion and mood. So a person could wake up happy, 
be rageful by 10 o'clock in the morning, be sobbing by noon, be happy again by two. It, with borderline personality style, not only is there a lot of dysregulation, there's a lot of almost what I'd call like environmental response. They're responding to anything that's happening in front of them. So to somebody watching this from the outside, they'll say, what the hell? You were laughing an hour ago. But for the person who's having borderline personality, they're experiencing a world of chaos inside. And it's as though they're like, I know how I'm supposed to act right now. I feel like I can't do it. It's like wild horses. And that's the work of the therapy is to sort of tame some of those wild horses and give the client alternative styles of responding. But while acknowledging that it feels like a real storm in front of that person, the only analogy I can give is imagine you eat some bad food and you either have to throw up or have tremendous diarrhea and someone's like, hold it. Mm. Right? It's that's how the person's experiencing like, I can't, you know, and they're like, and then they say it. And afterwards there's a release of tension, but there's tremendous remorse. There's a, there's a big difference between borderline and antisocial after a person with borderline personality has one of their has, has may have an outburst or a reactive kind of an attack. And they're sort of then depleted. They'll say, Oh my gosh. And then the fear is they're going to be rejected or abandoned, which sometimes happens because people might have hit the wall. And the person will then frantically try to avoid that abandonment from happening. That's the cycle there. Right. And so this issue of reactivity is such a tricky one. And then that goes back to this idea of what else we diagnose. So bipolar two is not is bipolar two is where a person has hypomanic episodes, which aren't like the full-blown manic episode. So a hypomanic episode, a person feels, um, they may feel like more energized and more like they may talk a little quicker. They may be really intense. They may be like, go, go, go. They could work like 18 hours a day, but they're still getting, you know, maybe only four or five hours of sleep, but not the one or two we might see in someone with mania. They're not doing really unusual behaviors. They're just probably doing a lot too much of them. The highs aren't as high. The lows aren't as lows, but they're still distinct. And they're not happening in the same day. Person with bipolar two is not going to be depressed in the morning and manic in the evening. They have their hypomanic periods. They have their depressed periods, right? So that's one misdiagnosis. Another misdiagnosis is ADHD. 60% of people with borderline personality have a co-occur, co-occurring ADHD. So it's not an either or. It's that ADHD is so common in people with borderline personality. The challenge is then... Some clinicians will say, oh, this is just ADHD because ADHD has impulsivity. ADHD can sometimes have some anger issues, anger, what we call anger modulation issues, the difficulty managing it, distractibility, kind of like sort of almost feeling flighty, like not paying attention, jumping from thing to thing. Those are also patterns we see in borderline. When I people say, maybe I have ADHD instead, I'm thinking they probably may have very well both because people with ADHD won't have the instability and identity and the same level of instability of emotion and the abandonment issues. All of that's going to be housed in the borderline. We may also see co-occurring substance use issues. Some folks with borderline personality are literally attempting to self-medicate, trying to get the moods to come in a little bit more to the center and may not like the way psych meds make them feel. So they sort of may find themselves doing that, but they may also be using substances as part of high-risk behaviors, acting out. Um, There's also a real suggestibility we can see in people who have histrionic and borderline personality. Suggestibility is kind of going along with what other people are telling you. So you you could be 
that means a person could be prone to a manipulative partner. They could be prone to like a culty space. They could be prone to someone saying, if you do this, you'll magically lose 60 pounds. Or, you know, there's again, a suggestibility, which can almost feel naive. And so because of that suggestibility, somebody's if they're hanging out with somebody who's using, they may get pulled into that space quite, again, there's a sort of a willingness to kind of capitulate to somebody else to maintain the relationships. Like, if you want to be my partner, you're going to use, and then the person may use because they don't want to lose the partner. So there's different ways that can happen, but substance use can be co-located um, with a borderline personality, but you need to account for both. Um, depression, uh, certain anxiety disorders, um, you know, the, and then certain, then there are things we call impulse control disorders, things there are like something called intermittent explosive disorder. The most common manifestation of that is road rage. So a person just almost like you're, you're living your life and all out of nowhere, it feels like they have this absolutely overwhelming sense of rage, which is dangerous. So some people that may co-locate with borderline personality, but you'd want to understand how often it happens, what the triggers are and so on before determining if it's the impulse control disorder or borderline personality. So you can see that there's lots and lots of overlaps out there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and another one, the most important one, I almost forgot, post-traumatic stress. So borderline personality has a trauma origin to it in almost all cases. Everyone says, ah, everyone has borderline personality disorder with sexual abuse. Not necessarily, but trauma, loss, and invalidation, absolutely. When we look at Marsha Linehan's biosocial model of the origin of borderline personality, she sees it as a point where a person has a high biological vulnerability and a high, um, a highly invalidating early environment. So there's this understanding that some people are biologically vulnerable. I think that with time, we're probably going to see some form of genetic vulnerability, though there are going to be people without that vulnerability who may just develop it. But that vulnerability coupled with that invalidating early environment. And that invalidation may be frank trauma, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, um, chaos in the early environment, um, witnessing domestic abuse and violence, um, uh, abandonment by early caregivers, and even the invalidation you see when a parent is so involved in themselves that they don't have the capacity to hold space for their child's own autonomy. And I think that's probably more cases of borderline than we would think. And so any of those kinds of invalidating early circumstances against that biological vulnerability can result in, uh, is more likely to result in a presentation of borderline personality disorder. In every client I've ever worked with who had borderline personality disorder, we saw both of those things operating. And almost always we would see at least one biological relative with either a one of these similar kind of adjacent personality issues or with a major mental illness. This is a random question, but you mentioned road rage. And I wondered why is road rage such a specific thing that people struggle with because there's not like there's shopping rage or like cooking rage like what is it about <laughs> driving that makes people get some people get into that headspace i think the anonymity and the incapacity to communicate with another driver so you know like if a person just cut right in line with in front of you at a grocery store right you'd be like i'm in the line and the person's like oh, oh i'm so sorry i did not i thought i thought this was just one line and then the whole thing will pass but when that happens in a car that anonymity doesn't help that said 
that happens to us all the time. And there's only a subset of individuals that are behaving in that manner. I think the anonymity makes it worse. I always thought a great device on a car, but I think probably could cause more accidents would be a little sign. Can I get in here? Or thank you for letting me in. Because, you know, sometimes people give you the wave, but if there was a way to communicate, you know, like, I just need to get in. Oh, I, I waited too long, you know, yes. and then, but there's too many signs on the back of your car. That's just not going to work. <laughs> but, um, but uh, who knows someday down the line, some sort of technology or person could send that to someone's like windshield to come up with like, Oh, they need to get in. If we could communicate, I think that would help. I think that there's an anonymity, you know, someone I know once said to me, they said, so many people are so frustrated in their lives. They're, they, they can't pay the bills, especially now with inflation and rents being so high and all of that. And they said, you know, so that tiny little bit of street that they own that they're not letting you into maybe the only power they've had that day. Oh, okay. So like, I have no power at work. I have no power at home. I have no power anywhere, but damn it, nobody's getting into this little <laughs> spot of freeway I've got right now. So I don't know if there's that psychology. I also think though, you know, I think road rage gets more attention because it can be so much more lethal. You know, someone's screaming in the grocery store, that's just uncomfortable, but someone's slamming into someone with a car, that's a different game. But I would argue that the road ragers are also grocery store ragers, go home and yell at your spouse ragers, scream at your dog ragers. I think they're ragers. And um and I think anytime they perceive that somebody's trying to take advantage of them, there's that 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 sort of reactive hypersensitivity. And we see that cut across all of these personality styles, that those folks are just wired for, again, it's a thin-skinned quality. And there's a name for it. And some, it, it. When it gets to a high enough level, we call it something called hostile attribution bias. And hostile attribution bias, I mean, in, in, in lay people's talk is everyone's out to get Everyone I see is out to get me. They want to cut in front of me. They want to steal my stuff. They're, you know, and we're, and I think we're living in an era of hostile attribution bias. I think everyone is thinking everyone wants a piece of them. And that's going to result, if you think that, and the minute that other person makes a wrong move, the other person's going to snap at them. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Do you think part of road rage too is the fact that it, it is dangerous? Like if somebody makes a mistake on the road, it could kill you. It could kill your family inside of the car and stuff like that. Do you think that that is part of it where it's like somebody who might not usually be rageful. They're all of a sudden in this vehicle, somebody almost hits them and then they're like, fuck you. Yeah, it's like <laughs> because that stakes. fear like, Oh, is there like a big difference between the chronic road rage and like those moments of like, wow, that I could have actually been killed. And now I'm feeling really rageful. Like I want the worst for that person. You know, might not I would grocery store. <laughs> I might argue a little differently though. Cause I think a lot of people who aren't the ragers, when that happens, they're almost shocked, right? Yeah. There's almost like their sympathetic nervous system response is one of almost like a, a freeze or a flight. Again, our other, other than our air tag takeaway is this, I cannot stress to people enough how dangerous it's gotten on the roads. Now, maybe I'm in Southern California where we're a very roady culture. I, I'm saying to people, when you see that person who is doing something funky in their car, let them go. Let They may be breaking rules. Let them get away from you. And I hate to say it, become someone else's problem. Because we are entering an era where honking at the wrong person means you die. And there have literally been, there was this tragic story here in Southern California of a kid 
a little kid, five-year-old kid who got killed because his mom had cut, I think, cut the person off trying to get into a carpool lane. It was down in Orange County. And the driver who was, I mean, he was just a bad guy. And 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 he um and had, had had history of being a road rager, picked up a gun, shot the other car, went through the back of the car, went through the child's back and killed them. And while people say, oh, come on, that's an apoc- apocryphal scene. I don't know. I've seen too many of these stories. And I bet that woman didn't think that when she kind of stuck into that carpool lane or cut the person off unknowingly, that her child would end up dead. Like we are. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all wheel drive and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Definitely in an era of unfettered, dysregulated personality. And because our laws are not designed to punish this stuff, you can't go arrest someone for being narcissistic. We have to wait for the dysregulated person to do a bad thing, to commit a crime. And if you are on the other side of that crime, it could be lethal. And you just, I mean, I hate to say it, I'm the only person in, in Southern California who thinks everyone on the road has a personality issue. So I'm like, I'm just going to be steady as she goes. And this huge distance around my kids are like, why do you drive like this? And I'm like, because I just think everyone on the road is going to try to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um. I also wanted to circle back to you said that kind of like if you had it your way with the DSM that you would mm-hmm. get rid of NPD and with mm-hmm. narcissistic personality, yeah. what would you change it to? Like, what would you feel is? I I would say that you don't need to diagnose the pattern, right? Because insurers don't pay for that diagnosis. You ain't going to get insurance reimbursement if you're a therapist on that diagnosis. We don't really have good treatment for it, and I think what has to happen is if a therapist sees somebody with these kinds of patterns. A, it's a miracle they're even in therapy, but B, then work with the patterns. But I've got to tell you, part of what's made my life so much harder is I'm trying to teach people about these patterns. Oh, you are diagnosing people. Stop diagnosing people. Shut up. I'm not diagnosing anyone. I'm saying that they're narcissistic. That is a pattern. You know, just like saying someone is friendly or someone is agreeable. No one's saying, why are you diagnosing them? Those are patterns too. And so I just think getting rid of the diagnosis, it, it does, it gets you nowhere. It does nothing. It has no forensic utility. It has no clinical utility. And it's making a really important societal conversation impossible. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I was, and I'm sure this is something that, uh, you know, was discussed in your previous episode with us, but when personality disorders are talked about on our podcast, we get a lot of messages from our listeners saying, hey, this sounds a lot like my partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. how, how do I navigate this now? Do you have advice for people 
on navigating something like that in a safe mm-hmm. way or how they can possibly work with it? So here's number one is, you know, I am a believer that people should not be slapping a diagnostic label on anyone, right? But you can certainly point out patterns. So when a person says, I think my partner has MPD, I'll be like, slow down, sister. Let's walk backwards a little bit. Why are you saying this? I'll say, my partner never has empathy. You know, no matter what I say, they tell me I'm stupid or I remembered it wrong. Okay, they're being gaslighted. I feel like everything's done on their schedule. And anytime I try to exert my needs, they laugh at me. Okay. While that, it's a lot messier to say that sentence than it is, I think they're narcissistic, which they probably are. By identifying the patterns, A, at least you're clear on what to keep looking for to see if there's shift there. Because if you say they're narcissistic, then what needs to change here, right? So I'm a big fan of people breaking it down by pattern. And then I tell folks, for a little while, keep track it. You may keep journals already and say, listen, this hasn't changed. It's been like this from, from day one. This person's been contemptuous of me from day one. They have one face for public, one face for private. It's been like this. Okay, then you already know it's a pattern. And odds are you've tried 20 different things to make a change. You've been confrontational. You've been really nice. You do anything they want. You keep your mouth shut. Nothing's working. Nothing's going to work. So then I say to people, if you want to be totally sure and it's safe, go into the tiger's cage. What's the tiger's cage? You walk in and you actually have the conversation. So maybe they weren't empathic and say, hey, you know, that didn't feel really empathic when I shared with you what happened at work. If they go off on you, You've entered the tiger's cage, the tiger tore you apart. I think you have your data and you've had a, enough data. It's almost like that one more piece. But if they say, hey, sit down and tell me about it, then you have to go back and say, what was like, maybe this is actually, there's there's something else I can make sense of this with. So it's finding those patterns, feeling confident that this is a pattern, that nothing you're doing is changing it. Go to your own therapy if you can, if we're the therapist who gets this, and then in addition to therapy and all of and any other ways you're supporting yourself, you have to start engaging in a couple of things. One is radical acceptance. How do I feel about this relationship if it's always going to be this way? Because odds are it's always going to be this way, right? You know, some folks will say, listen, I've been in this for a long time. We have kids. It's the religious reasons, financial reasons, whatever. I, I respect that. And I'd say, okay, then it's time to start throwing some Hail Mary passes. You can bring it up and see like, listen, this is feeling untenable to me. If it's safe, if it's safe. Um, And then either the partner will say they might try, they may not try. Um, Some people will say I'm out. And then the partner will try for a little while. The partner might future fake and say, I'm going to fix it. And then they don't, but they get better for a minute. Couples therapy is dicey. In some cases, couples therapy can be a real, if if, like sometimes you might get a tiny bit of progress, but you need one hell of a good couples therapist who is not able to get played by a person, for example, who's narcissistic. If you decide I'm not leaving this relationship, there's other, because remember with the key to a narcissistic relationship to understand is that there's good days and bad days. It's not all bad days. And the good days confuse people. And so I tell people, okay, you're going to have those good days. That's the nature of a narcissistic relationship. They had a great day at work. You're going out for a fabulous dinner and they're going to think you're the coolest, greatest person ever. Three days later, when they find out the job has some really awful responsibilities or two other people got promoted too, and they're grumpy, you're going to have a bad day. If you That's, that's the shape shifting. That's the up and down. Can you handle that? Only you know the answer to that. It's not, and it's not about you, right? I always tell people, don't go deep. 
You want to stay in this relationship? Don't defend yourself. Don't explain. Don't over-engage and don't personalize. Some people say, well, that's not a relationship. Okay, well, you're not going to have one with this person. You decide if you want to go. And then finally, it's radical acceptance. This is not going to change. This is it. So as a person goes through all of those that, that recognition, and that takes a minute, some folks say, you know what? I think I might stay till my youngest child turns 18. Some people will say, no, I'm getting out because I don't want this. I don't want to raise kids with this person. Um, and it may not just be a partner. This could be a family member. This could be a, a boss. Um, it, you don't, it depends on the setting, the kinds of choices you make, but you've got to make those choices from a perspective that the narcissist typically set the emotional thermostats in the relationship. And you're just going to have to, like, you're going to have to almost, I say to folks, there's a, the, your depth the part of you that needs depth in a relationship, you're going to have to outsource that. And it may be really great friendships. It may be meaningful and purposeful work. It may be some sort of spiritual grounding. It may be some loving relationships you have in your family. It's painful to think that may not happen a primary relationship, but nobody ever said life was fair. So it seems like there's a big boom, especially thanks to social media of like self-aware narcissists coming out and talking about it or like self-aware cluster B personalities in some mm -hmm. respect. Have you noticed in your work, like a certain triggering event or incident that makes somebody become self-aware that they have these tendencies? Like, how do you feel about that happening just kind of in general and then in your own experience? I think there's two groups. I've worked clinically with self people who became self-aware narcissists. I remember so clearly one man who is a self-aware narcissist who said, I actually kind of hate you as a therapist for making me self-aware because he said, I kind of was just the one man wrecking crew I was before, but now this like, I am me and I'm going to do hurtful things. So I just don't know how to stop myself, but now I know I'm hurting them and now I feel like shit. So thanks a lot. Like he was mad. He was mad at me. Wow. And so if you really are doing self-aware narcissism right, it's a miserable life because there, it's, you know what, you, this is the best example I can give you. I'll speak, I'll speak for myself. Might as well be self-effacing on self-helpless. Um, <laughs> I, um, I think of myself with food. Mama loves herself some sugar here. I love sugar. I, lo I even like fast food and French fries. I do. I, and I want to be the girl who orders the kale salad and is happy about it with her glass of Pellegrino. Meanwhile, I'm chugging the Diet Coke and putting ketchup <laughs> on the fries. That's how I prefer to eat. I love to eat. I love, I love ethnic food. I, I just love to eat. My mom's an amazing cook, right? Mm. So you put me in front of a buffet that's got like chocolate croissants and desserts. And, you know, I am not going to go like, oh, I'm going to make myself a little salad with lemon juice. I'm like, girl, there's like all this stuff, <laughs> right? So for me, could I? Could I change my eating habits so I was all kale and, and skinless chicken breast all the time? Sure, anything's possible. But on a, if I'm having a bad day, I'm going to be shoving four of those croissants down my throat and washing that whole mess down with Diet Coke. I'm telling you that right now, okay? That's the, the self-aware narcissist. I know how I should eat, and sometimes I get it right. I do. Like I had a banana for breakfast. I'm going to have a yogurt later. Okay, good, good, good. I guarantee you. By 4 p.m., four Oreos would have gone down this lady's throat. Okay. <laughs> so that that if you put that in that self-aware narcissism framework, yeah. the self-aware narcissist has the yogurt, has the banana, has the egg whites, has the kale salad, four o'clock, someone pisses them off. Rah! Okay. Yeah. And then they go back and they're like, oh man, why did I eat the Oreos? Oh, I shouldn't yeah. have done that. Let me go say sorry. Okay. 
Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, they're trying egg whites, kale salad, chicken, blah, 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 blah. box of good and plenty goes down their throat. It's the, it's the same thing. It's like it can be done, but there's some days it can't be done. Right. And so it's, and so I think that that to me still beats the alternative if they can issue a genuine apology and say, okay, I'm trying. I screwed up. I'm sorry. I get it. The other problem with the self-aware narcissism movement, as it were, are, is the cognitive empathy of it all. So there's two kinds of empathy, and I'm simplifying it too much, but there's emotional empathy and there's cognitive empathy. Cognitive empathy is getting your emotion. Okay. So if one of you came up to me and said, Hey, I've been with this, I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm being heteronormative. So forgive me if I'm being, because so you're dating a guy, right? You were together a long time. You thought you're going to marry this person. You moved in together, da, 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 da. And we work together and you break up and I'm just busy doing what I want. Can't be bothered with you. And you're telling me, you're like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, Kelsey. Yep. I, gosh, that I'm, I'm sure you're really sad, Kelsey. I get Kelsey is sad, but Kelsey can sense that like, God, how long do I really need to sit? You could almost get this vibe from me. Cognitive empathy is like crying at the movie. Cognitive empathy is I understand you feel that way, right? Emotional empathy is I'm crying with Kelsey. I'm like, sweetie, how can I help you? I mean, you let me know. Do you want, should we just, can I give you a hug? Do you want to hang out, watch TV, like anything? I'm so sorry. And you can see I'm actually meeting you, even if I haven't been through that, right? Emotional empathy. Emotional empathy is sugar. Cognitive empathy is Splenda. You know, it ain't the real thing. It may, may think things sweet for a minute, but it's not the real thing. And yeah. so the, um, I think a lot of the self-aware narcissists are pulling out the cognitive empathy card it's still not that satisfying for the other person, right? It beats the alternative. It beats the gaslighting. It beats the manipulation. It beats the rage. But it's the, how many errors are you going to allow a day in the relationship? Some people say, you know what? If we go through a week and they only have one of their little fits twice a week, I can deal with that. I can make this work. No relationships. Perfect. You do you. You get it. Um, if they, but you've seen, like, if they're not gaslighting as much, they're like, oh shoot, I'm gaslighting you. If they're aware in real time, I'll tip my hat to that. I haven't seen a lot of it. You know, what I've seen is very episodic. They'll get it right. They'll get it right. They'll get it right. They'll get it wrong. They'll get it wrong. They'll get it right. They'll get it wrong. Right, 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 wrong. So it's still got that, but there's more rights probably than wrongs. There's a subset of the self-aware narcissists who I think that this is a gimmick. And they're going onto social media and they're shaming people who are in these relationships and leaving people very confused about, should I stay in these relationships? And they're being played. And I'm actually really uncomfortable with that. You know, they're basically, it's like the histrionic piece, right? It Or you know what it is? I liken those sort of pseudo self-aware narcissists to the mommy bloggers who kids are wearing white and they are a size zero and have a clean house. I'm like, uh, bitch, I don't think so. <laughs> So, um, you know, it's that it's, it's, and and what that does is in all seriousness, these, these women who are, you know, have the perfect figure and the perfect husband and the children in the white shirts and the perfect kitchen, there are moms out there who are really struggling with mental health, depression, anxiety. I'm not measuring up. And then they look at these attention seeking mothers who, oh, is that your personal chef in the back and your three housekeepers and your six nannies that you're claiming not to have? 
How dare you? Because there are mothers out there who are struggling, thinking they don't measure up. I'm not okay with that. So I am not okay with so-called pseudo self-aware narcissists who are saying, you need to give us a chance. We're not getting it. But some of them might be the real deal. But self-aware narcissism may still only be cognitive empathy. It's messy. It's messy. And I've worked with enough self-aware narcissists out there. I'll tell you this right now. I'm proud of the progress they made. I think that they definitely turned the ship. I'd never want to be in a relationship with them. Wow. So what treatments are available? Let's say somebody has borderline and they really want to, Mm -hmm. you know, implement some changes. Mm -hmm. What's available to people with these types of personality disorders? Of all the personality disorders, borderline personality disorder, there I see the most hope in treatment. I think that we've come a really long way in evidence-based treatment. Somebody came up to me and said, I have a family member with borderline personality disorder and they're willing to go into treatment. I said, great, because you got nothing but options. The The treatment model that has been upheld the most in the literature is something called dialectical behavior therapy. And dialectical behavior therapy is, it really gets at that whole idea of the of the lack of integration that a person with borderline personality has in a very, very, very simplified form. It's about finding the gray and being okay with the gray. It's about soothing yourself in the moment. It's about teaching a person to do that. Dialectical behavior therapy is very much an in-the-moment therapy. It's how am I feeling? What are other strategies I have here? How else can I approach this? How can I walk, walk myself back from the ledge, as it were? How do I manage my suicidal crises? And the research on DBT above everything else has shown more than any other therapy, it has really helped manage those more severe suicidal crises. Initially, when a person has borderline personality, and if it's severe enough, once a week, psychotherapy ain't going to cut it. They may need to go into what's called intensive outpatient therapy or intensive outpatient treatment, which is sometimes three to four days, about four to six hours at a time. There's group therapy, there's individual therapy. Many people with borderline personality, depending on what they decide with their treating um professionals may find adjunctive medication helps like mood stabilizers, sometimes even a low dose antipsychotic. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'd obviously have people defer, have to talk to their MD or their um, registered nurse practitioner, psychiatric nurse practitioner to get guidance around that. Um, Then you'll also see other adjunctive treatments like CBT. But most crucially, I would say that the perfect model would also have to include trauma-informed therapy. Because so many people with borderline personality have histories of trauma, having a trauma-informed model, that includes um, EMDR, it can include um, uh, somatic therapies, uh, it could include um, you know, internal family systems. There's a, a lot of models being out there being used with trauma survivors, but a trauma-informed perspective that is validating, that is safe, that is accountable, that is interactive, so that the person feels a sense of efficacy, control, and their own personal power in therapy. And a, and a therapist who gets how this personality um, personality style works and that your therapist is also managing the other issues, whether it's substance use, disordered eating or frank eating disorder, whether it's um, depression, anxiety, I, I personally am not. I mean, I think that unless a person's been in treatment for a while, once a week usually isn't going to cut it. It usually needs to be. And you, good DBT programs will have people do group work, individual work. There's there's a there's a lot of workbook work in between um, meditation and other adjunctive practices. It's a comprehensive approach, right? So this is not something you drop in the therapy once a month. It's a comprehensive, focused, intensive approach, and that ain't free. 
And that's a big problem is an access issue. So I'm giving you the best of possible worlds. If a person doesn't have access to that kind of care, it can be a really bumpy, bumpy road. Mm. Oh, that's so hard. Yeah. Um, can you please plug your podcast so that our listeners <laughs> yeah. can come that, over that feels very narcissistic, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> I would love it if people would tune into Navigating Narcissism. You you it you can get it at iHeart, you can get it at Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcast, you can listen. Please subscribe. I have it has been such a joy to work on this because in my YouTube channel where, you know, we have so many people checking in there, I'm teaching folks about all of this, but on my, um, on my podcast, it's a chance for me to talk to other people. But a lot of these are stories that have been shared in the media. A great example would be, I talked to one of the women from the Tinder swindler, Eileen Charlotte, and the Tinder swindler left people feeling like, oh, how could these women be so foolish? The problem is we tend to we tend to tell very perpetrator focused stories in our media. We don't tell the stories of the survivors. Navigating narcissism is the story of the survivors. It's how do people survive these stories? How do we stop pathologizing the survivors, viewing them as weak or foolish and recognizing any of us would be vulnerable to this? And above all else, after hearing these stories, all kinds, people from cults, people who've been swindled, the woman who had to deal with Anna Delvey. So whether it's friendships, whether it's romantic relationships, cults, workplace, you name it. How do you learn from the people who've been through it? How do we stop pathologizing them? How do we learn and how do we use that to benefit our healing? So come and listen to Navigating Narcissism. You, You really, and anyone who's watched any of these things on Netflix or wherever saying, oh, this is the other side of the story. This is the other side of the story. So come to Navigating Narcissism. We turn the boat upside down and let you look at the hull for a minute. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) We can't thank you enough for coming back on. Thank you. Such a pleasure to talk to. I feel like I learned so much. Yeah. Thank Thank you you. so very much. I I appreciate it. Really helpful to a lot of people. Thank you. All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Take good care. It's good to see you. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, boy. Oh, my gosh. It's like every nanosecond of that podcast episode was packed with so much information. (laughs) You could tell she she knows her shit and she talks about it for a living. Because there is – in stand-up, we talk a lot about word economy – Right. So like when you're writing jokes, you want to you want to get to the point. Right. You you don't want to like put a bunch of filler in there. That's not necessary. The way that she teaches. Yeah. <laughs> about personality disorders. It's like it is the most succinct informational way to yeah. talk about it. It's so powerful. Yeah. I love the analogy she gave, too, of like. You know, the food analogy and stuff like that, like it just, it, it it makes something that feels kind of not super digestible when you hear all the terminology and she turns it into yes. something that's very digestible and understandable to like the lay person. Yes. Um, so yeah. yeah, I really appreciate it. I always appreciate a good like example or analogy to like break down these like very dense things. Yeah. I also enjoyed the conversation about uh, road rage and like, the kind of yes. psychology behind that uh, and maybe enjoyed as a strong word. Cause I know at the end of that had a very dark ending, but I just mean like trying to, that's just always been something to me. That's been odd. Like why, what is it about the road 
that yeah, can yeah. take people to that level, right? Yeah. But, I mean, she she proved a good point that if somebody's particularly road ragey, you're probably mm-hmm. seeing that in other areas of their life as well. Right. I mean, like I've definitely experienced being super angry at a driver on the road because yeah. they almost cut me off. They almost hit me. And I immediately said like, I, I like, fuck you. You know, I hope right. you have a horrible day. Right. <laughs> Where it's like, because you almost killed me. So it's like this natural, like, you know, response where, you know, she gave a grocery store analogy where it's like, you know, if somebody bumped into me with their cart, I don't feel so threatened. Like I'm going to die. You know, I was like, okay, that's annoying and kind of rude, but I'm not going to be yelling at that person or like that. But it's interesting. Like if that person in the car could hear me scream at them, would I still do it? (laughs) Or would I be more just like, motherfucker? (laughs) Yeah. The anonymity. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. The anonymity. And I don't think we even touched too about how when you have a vehicle, suddenly you are in charge of this thing that is much, it, it's like a suit of armor in a way. I feel yeah. like it gives people this feeling like they are much more powerful than just their naked body right. in line at a grocery store, right? Right. Anyway. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, truly. So uh, we hope that you guys enjoyed us having her back on. Uh, yes. We have an iTunes review of the episode. This is from Kate Gray. It says, these girls are so hilarious and relatable. Love this podcast so much. Oh, thank oh, you, Kate. Thank you, Kate. Very nice. Thanks for taking the time. Yes. Much yes. appreciated. Yes. <laughs> Be like Kate. Take the time. <laughs> Even a short one like that is so sweet and it really helps the show. So um, help us keep growing on iTunes. If you could go leave us a five-star Ooh, rating a review as I punched the mic accidentally. Sorry about that. Um, do you have a segment, Delaney? Um, I do. I have a quick one. Um, I got my second tattoo a couple days ago. So I got oh, another tattoo right on my arm. <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually, I went with my sister. So um, it looks it, so it, good. Thank you. Yeah. So I have one on this arm now and I have one over here. It's so weird. I went from- You are tatted. I know. I'm a tatted ass bitch now. I don't know how this happened. I went from having zero tattoos to two tattoos in under a year. And I just, yeah, I never thought I would really get one. But um, my, um, if you know that Carpenter song, Close to You, the mm-hmm. why do birds, that one. Yeah. Um, so my mom sang that to me like almost every night as a kid to like fall asleep to. And so I naturally sang it to my siblings as they were little kids. I have a huge age gap with my siblings. I'm like, feel like an aunt or like a second mom. So I would sing that song to them. Um, before bedtime and stuff like that. So my sisters really wanted to get like a sister tattoo where we have like lyrics from that song um, and some birds and stuff like that. So we all got a different version of that. Um, Yeah. With my two sisters, it was really, it was a crazy experience to go through that together. I mean, they're, they're young. I mean, they're 19 and 20. So yeah, um, it was really fun, but yeah, they're all kind of like, you know, cohesive in a, in a certain way. So I think I'm beautiful. I think I'm done now. I think I'm done with tattoos, but it was, man, it's really fun. I see why people get more and more. It's just like a really cool process to like watch the artist do everything. And like, I don't know, it's just, it's quite fascinating. I liked it. Yeah. I think it's pretty common for people to get their first tattoo and then get a second one pretty quickly after that. That's what you're saying. Yeah. They're like, eh, most people come back within the year after their second one. I was like, that's probably not going to be me. Eh, nine months later. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> hello. <laughs> hello there. Remember me? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what about you, Kels? Any uh, hot updates or any anything? I just wanted to share. So I've been watching a lot of documentaries lately. I think I mentioned on the show three identical uh, – oh, why can't I remember the name of it now? Did I talk about this on the show yet? 
documentaries? Yeah. Recently? I don't think so. We haven't recorded together in a while, so probably not. Oh, okay. So there are just a couple. Um, oh, Three Identical Strangers. There are a couple documentaries oh, I wanted to play. I love that one. Who... Oh, you've seen that one? Yeah, such a good one. Yeah. Wow, isn't that crazy? Wild. So wild. Basically, without this isn't these aren't spoilers, but just the basis of it is that um, there were three triplets separated at birth and found each other going into college and kind of the whole background of like why they were separated and it's wild dude so i've crazy. never seen anything like it and it's yeah. it's a documentary that really stays with you so i recommend that and then i also watched train wreck on netflix so that's also the name of an amy schumer movie but they did a three-part documentary on woodstock 99 and mm. if you were somebody who enjoyed the documentaries on the fire festival and kind of how oh, that yeah. went so poorly right. i didn't realize what really went on at woodstock 99 i have watched video performances on youtube of some of my favorite artists who were performing back then and i've just seen like their performances but the whole everything that was happening behind the scenes and uh I, I, it's just something that i did not have all the info on and it is fucking crazy like oh, be wow. warned going into it it's a little anxiety inducing because it just the festival itself is a very it, it's very chaotic but yeah. i am also glad i watched it because i just think it's it's an interesting piece of history so um oh i don't oh my god can't believe i didn't lead with this i went to um the red hot chili peppers concert uh, oh nice in That's seattle fun. with my best friend kelly and the strokes opened for them which was oh very cool just bananas i mean they that's a band i would have bought the same ticket price just to see them right they they don't like open for people i mean they're massive but they're on tour of the Red Hot Chili Peppers right now. And then Eddie Vedder, the lead singer of Pearl Jam, came out and surprised oh, everybody shit. and sang um, the Stroke song Juice Box with them. And it was just like, it was a very magical evening. So uh, cool. that's, that's a good shit that I yes. got to go do that. I had the best time. I love it. That's really fun. Yes. My good favorite shit. band, Red Hot Chili Peppers. So uh, that was my second time seeing them and they were incredible. They are 60. I cannot believe that these wow. dudes are 60 years old. But still killing it. Still killing it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think that's it. But um, please go to KelseyCook.com. Get those tour date tickets. DC yeah. and Grand Rapids this month, baby. Fabulous. DelaneyFisher.com if you want the Minimalist Business Podcast. Sweet. We will talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Self Helpless Podcast. You can find our Patreon community, merch, and our individual work at selfhelplesspodcast.com. We'd be thrilled if you shared this episode with a friend or feel free to post it on Instagram and tag at selfhelplesspodcast so we can repost you and say thank you. 